Well, good morning, everyone. So in case you hadn't noticed, Christmas is uh, coming quickly, just three weeks away now, actually. So still plenty of time to get the tree, get the perfect, uh, get all handwrite all those Christmas cards to everyone, get the perfect Christmas gift for everyone on your list. Uh, and to help you out this year, um, a shopping mall surveyed a bunch of elementary school kids, little kids, uh, to find out what they really want for Christmas. So parents, listen up. This may be helpful for you in your planning. So uh, to- uh, uh, top 10 list here, things that elementary school kids are wanting for Christmas. Coming in at number 10, we had uh, Dad. This was a little like, oh, I don't know if that means Dad because he's just so awesome or Dad because he works so hard and I never see him. <laughs> I'm going to go with the first one because the second is a little sad. Um, but number nine, um, a rock. Remember, we're talking about little kids here. So uh, parents, maybe you can start returning stuff now to the store. <laughs> um, Number eight, we have uh, snow. Who doesn't want snow at Christmas, right? Right on. Uh, number, s- whoops, we're going the wrong way here. Okay, uh, snow, then a house. I'm not sure what to make of that. Um, chocolates. How is this not number one on the list? That's what I want to know. Chocolate should be number one. So uh, a dog, standard, everyone wants a puppy of Christmas. Just uh, spoiler alert, cats do not feature anywhere on this list. <laughs> Uh, a car. I think a parent snuck this one out. Hey, Johnny, I want a car. Put a car on there. Put in a good word for, to Santa for me. Uh, a horse. I don't know. Maybe there was like a, a, a something. They were like polling kids who had just read Black Beauty or I'm not sure. This one makes much more sense. A reindeer. That would be awesome. I want a reindeer for Christmas. And number one, top of the list... A baby brother or sister. Oh, isn't that sweet? Maybe a little late to work on that one if you haven't already got started. Um, now, now I, I don't know how scientific this poll was. Let's just say that. But you can tell there's a wide variety of gift options available on there, running the gamut from the sublime, like a child, a baby, to the ridiculous, like a reindeer. (laughs) Um, From the practical, a rock, to the uncontrollable snow. I have no control over whether or not that's going to happen. Now, why do I bring all this up? Like, I, we may laugh at the silliness of a list like this, but these little kids, they give us a glimpse into the kind of mixed hopes and dreams that we all have for Christmas, right? It's a season of hope, as, as Pastor Michael already said, of yearning, of, of longing for all sorts of different things, for toys and games and gadgets, sure, but also for those bigger issues, the healing and wholeness and peace and calm, maybe even for change, for things to be different this year. In fact, our deepest longings are usually the the things that we cannot buy anywhere. This is why I think Christmas movies are so captivating, right? Because they tap into these very real, deep longings of our hearts. And so however cheesy or predictable they may be, they succeed by painting vivid pictures of hope, of of how something could be different. They give us a vision 
to cling to in times of struggle and stress and difficulty. Of course, the problem is all these movies fall short. They end and we have to go back to life as normal. So where can we turn to for real, lasting hope in this world? That's the subject of our Advent series this year. We know the answer is Jesus. He's the reason for the season. But as the carol says, what child is this? What child is this? Who is he? Who is this little baby? So as you go through Scripture, the names of Jesus are many, many, many. But this Advent, we're going to focus in on just four over the next few weeks. So today, looking at Jesus as our hope. And next week, Jesus as our King, the King of Kings. The week after that, Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And finally, on Christmas Day, Jesus as our Savior. But today, we're going to kick it all off by looking at what it means to say that Jesus is our hope. My first encouragement to you today is this, wait confidently. Because Jesus is our hope, wait confidently. So open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. Now I know Christmas is focused around the night that Jesus was born, right? That's where all our energy and attention is, is focused. But I want to skip forward just, just a little bit to a, a pivotal moment that takes place just a week later when Joseph and Mary take the baby Jesus to Jerusalem to present him at the temple. So we read, starting in verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Look carefully here at verse 25. The text says, Simeon was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, you'd be forgiven for maybe skipping over these verses in your traditional Advent readings, but it's actually a key text as we consider this topic of hope, because the central theme here is waiting. Waiting. The implication from the text is that the Simeon has been waiting for a very long time, perhaps his entire life, just for the chance to catch a glimpse of of the consolation of Israel, as Luke calls it. What is this consolation and why why this waiting? Well, consolation is just another word for comfort. Like the Christmas carol, when we we speak of uh, tidings of comfort and joy, good news of comfort for the world. But what is this comfort? Simeon's not looking for some easy chair to kick back in. He's looking for the fulfillment of promises made to God's people by the prophet Isaiah. And so we read in Isaiah 51, God has pronounced judgment on his people, and then he asks them a rhetorical question. He says, these two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Who will comfort you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword, who will comfort you? 
That question would linger with the people throughout their exile. Who would bring them comfort? How could they possibly be reconciled once again with God? But God himself answers, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. As one whom his mother uh, comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And to be clear here, Isaiah's not just talking about words of encouragement to make you feel better about your situation. He's talking about salvation. So that's why we read uh, already, Angie read to us from Isaiah 40. Isaiah says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is the comfort or consolation that Simeon had been waiting for. This is the comfort the people of Israel had been hoping for, longing for, looking for, eagerly, expectantly, for hundreds of years. You know, think about this time of year is kind of a strange one for us culturally, right? On the one hand, we live in a world where Amazon can deliver anything to us within even a matter of hours sometimes. And yet when we get to December, we make this sort of collective cultural bargain that we're actually going to voluntarily wait for four whole weeks and then all open these gifts at the same time. But why are we waiting? In a culture so obsessed with immediacy, why wait four long weeks for anything? Because in some small way, we're reenacting this waiting that Simeon was talking about, this waiting that the prophets were enduring and speaking of, this waiting that the priests and the kings and all the people of God stretching back through David and Abraham and Noah and even all the way back to Adam and Eve, waiting for God to comfort his people. And we now are waiting with them, yearning for God to restore his people, for the curse to be undone. And such waiting is not a passive standing around but an active expression of confident assurance in what is yet to come. So for the prophets, it was, it was confident assurance that God would comfort his people and restore his nation, that God would make good on his promises to redeem Israel. And Simeon makes it clear that Jesus is the singular answer to these longings. So look back at our text in Luke chapter 1. Uh, Picking it up in verse 28, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now you have to picture this scene in your mind because Simeon utters this profound blessing while he's holding Jesus in his arms. His living hope right there in front of him. The long-awaited and oft-promised salvation for all people. Humbling himself, taking on human flesh to dwell among us 
That's the source and the ground of your hope this Christmas. And maybe I can illustrate it uh, a little bit for you here. Hope, in the way that we tend to talk about it, is a bit like this balloon. It's pretty and, and lighthearted. It's a sort of feeling, this ephemeral feeling that we have about something we wish might come true. But, but honestly, who knows? It's a sort of it's light and it, it, it bounces around and eventually, sooner or later, it'll let us down. You can wait expectantly for something that you want for Christmas and you toy and you game, but the ground of your hope is nothing more than, than dreams, wishes. But the hope that we see demonstrated over and over again in the Bible is not rooted in my desires or even in the favorable conditions around me. Hope in the Bible is rooted in a person, in God himself. That's what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 39. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And unlike a balloon that is filled with nothing but hot air, our Lord is as solid and secure as a rock. I can, this is about the biggest rock I could find in our yard to bring in. I had to pry this out of the dirt. It's frozen to the ground. There's bits of mud and grass stuck to it still. But this represents throughout Scripture this imagery of God as a rock, certain, solid, secure, stable, unchanging. Right? He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. So this Christmas, I, I don't know what, what fears, doubts, anxieties, or concerns you may have. But wait expectantly and eagerly and confidently for God to act. Don't give up too quickly and let your heart slip into depression or, or apathy. Don't give up too quickly and then, and then rush to try and make things happen under your own strength. Instead, when you feel that fear rising or your hope waning, cling tightly to that rock in prayer and trust that he will act. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Now Christmas may be all about waiting, but it's also a season filled with exciting surprises, right? And so my second encouragement today is this. Because Jesus is your hope, celebrate joyfully. There's always this tension when it comes to presents, right? Like on the one hand, I want to say, um, look, here's a list. Here's all the specific things that I want for Christmas because I want to make sure you get it right. And not like nearly right, but like exactly the thing I want, because otherwise when I open the gift, I'm going to be like, oh, thank you. That's like almost what I wanted. And now I have to sort of be like fake excited or whatever. That's like the controlling side, right? But then there's the other side, because if I do give you a list and you literally just buy everything exactly as written, then there's no surprise at all, which sounds great. Like the controlling side of me is like, hey, that's awesome, perfect. 
but it can also be totally deflating as well, right? Because in a perfect world, each gift will be both exactly what I want and also, somehow miraculously, a complete surprise, <laughs> which is probably why we are all so stressed out of our minds right now. It's like, <laughs> we're, it's a lose-lose. So when we look at the stories in the Bible about the birth of Jesus, it's clear some people were waiting and praying for very specific things to happen, right? So Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying their whole lives for a baby. Simeon and Anna had been waiting and watching and praying for years for the Messiah to come, looking for the redemption, the consolation of Israel. The wise men, Likewise, searching the skies at night, watching, waiting, looking for that sign to follow. And God broke into the lives of these men and women in remarkable ways, right? Answering those long-spoken prayers. But not everyone in the story was quite as neat and tidy. Not everyone was busy planning, preparing, organizing, eagerly, expectantly, confidently hoping for specific things to happen. In fact, the main characters in the story don't seem to be eagerly waiting for anything at all. They're just going about their normal day-to-day lives. Think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's not in the temple praying for the consolation of Israel. She's essentially the, the most plain, average, normal, everyday, regular woman you can imagine, right? Living in Small village, no particularly grand plans or prospects ahead of her. Moreover, she doesn't even fit in the Old Testament model of sort of barren wife praying earnestly for a child like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, or Hannah. She isn't even married yet. So getting engaged, I mean getting pregnant is probably the last thing on her mind. In many ways, Mary is the opposite of everything I just talked about in the first part of the sermon, in the sense that there's, there's no indication in the text of a deep prophetic longing for God to fulfill his promises of old in and through her. And yet, God does so anyway. So you know the story, right? Gabriel appears before her. She understandably freaks out a little bit. And then when she comes down, he tells her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary will not only conceive through the power of the Holy Spirit, but her baby will be called the Son of the Most High, reigning as the promised Davidic King. Now, I don't know about you, but most pregnant women I talk to have somewhat more mundane prayer requests. But that's the point. Mary does absolutely nothing to deserve or earn this. Her prayers didn't call down God's blessing. Her good works didn't merit God's favor. It is God's gracious gift, pure and simple. Unexpected, unplanned, almost incomprehensible in scale and scope, 
And so Mary becomes a reminder that sometimes Jesus is the hope that we didn't know that we needed, but who God graciously provides for us anyway. Meaning, look, I try to pray in accordance with what I think God's will and plan and purposes is. I, I hope for this outcome or that outcome. I try to wait patiently for what I think God is going to do next. But thankfully, God is not bound by the embarrassing limitations of my own very limited imagination. I think this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he prays in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That's how God works. All the time. So when I read Mary's story, my understanding of hope, it, it expands dramatically. Because her story teaches me that, that God can do far more than I could ever imagine, let alone be praying for. Jesus is the hope Mary didn't know that she needed. But even Zechariah and Simeon and Anna couldn't have imagined the rest of the story, right? His life and, and ministry. I mean, they knew that God's people needed redemption, but it's doubtful that they grasped the depth or the extent of their sin or the depth or the extent of God's love and, uh, and, and the extent to which he would go to rescue and redeem them. So they knew God is going to bring comfort that's been promised to us in the prophets. But nobody at that time, not even the disciples, could wrap their head around the idea that such salvation would involve uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus was a hope that, that nobody knew they really needed. And the only response to this gracious activity of God in our lives, then, is to rejoice. That's what we see Mary do, right? She bursts into song and in uh, Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She celebrates with joy. We should marvel and wonder at the surprising and the unexpected ways in which God is constantly at work in our lives. And what better time to do this than at Christmas, especially in the middle of all the chaos and craziness and stress. Choose to look for the ways God is revealing himself in ways that you hadn't planned or prepared for. And trust that he is at work preparing something even more amazing than anything you can imagine. Well, one final encouragement for us today as we round out this message on Jesus as our hope. Because Jesus is our hope, we should live faithfully. Live faithfully. If you can't tell, I love Christmas. And one of the reasons is all the traditions... Every family, right, has their own way of doing things. Like some families, they all get matching Christmas pajamas or, um, or maybe uh, do a family white elephant thing or use handmade advent calendars or go ice skating together. 
Not to mention all the different food traditions that we could talk about in here. Traditions like these are fascinating to me because they work in multiple directions at the same time. So on the one hand, these traditions, they look back, right at the past, at the way things have been. They remind us of the ways in which we've always done something before. So I have some friends, and their tradition is to open all the Christmas presents starting at midnight on Christmas Eve. So they stay up all night long and then sleep all day on Christmas Day. Why? It's a tradition. Like, this is the way we've always done things. So traditions, they, they, they look back, but, but they aren't static, like memories. Because the purpose of a tradition is to reenact it every year. And in that sense, they're, they're a powerful tool for helping us to, to live in the present, right? to be in the moment, which is incredibly important right now when our lives are so filled with digital distractions and where being present with the people around you is so challenging. But there's one final dimension to, to traditions, because although it may not seem obvious at first, they also draw our attention into the future. They keep us from getting stuck in the, in, the, in the present or locked in the past and stretch our eyes out to gaze at what's next. Next summer at camp, next July 4th at the, at the lake, next Thanksgiving with the other side of, fam, of our family. So maybe this year's celebration didn't go exactly as planned because half the family got sick. Next year, we're going to do this again. All hope isn't lost. And hope functions in a similar way in our lives. It draws deeply from the experiences uh, of God's faithfulness to us in the past. It reflects on the unexpected graces that uh, God gives us in the present. And hope pushes us to look ahead faithfully and confidently to the future as well. Jesus has come Jesus is present with us currently, and Jesus will return in glory one day in the future. So Mary and Joseph would have struggled to see or understand the idea of a second coming of Christ. They had enough of a hard time wrapping their minds around the first coming of Christ. But after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the disciples came to embrace this tension between what we talk about frequently is the already and the not yet of Christ's kingdom. He's come, he's here, he's defeated sin, we've been saved, and yet we're still waiting for the consummation of all things in the future. And so Paul says in his letter to Titus in chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Jesus, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the word hope is used in many ways throughout the New Testament, but a major focus of hope is on Jesus' second coming, his appearing in glory, as Paul talks about it as the king who has returned, who will return to reclaim his throne and to establish his kingdom once and for all. 
Believers then are both to demonstrate hope themselves in the sense of like a, a confident assurance and also to see Jesus as the object of their hope. He is the one that we are hoping in and he's also the one that we're hoping for. His return to us in glory, his final defeat of all sin and sickness and suffering and pain. And so Peter says much the same thing uh, in First Peter chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what I love about both these passages in Titus and Peter is that they give a, a concrete shape to what it looks like to hope for the future. Looking ahead faithfully to the future coming of Jesus sounds great, but like, like what does that mean to wait confidently? Like how exactly do I hope for the future? And Peter and Paul both draw our attention to the fact that the way that we live our lives here and now reflects what we believe about what will happen in the future. We live for Christ now because we know and trust and believe and hope that he is coming back, perhaps very soon. And so what kind of people ought we to be as we wait for his return? Sober-minded, upright, self-controlled, right? Prepared for action, especially at such an intense time of year when materialistic desires can run rampant, when tiredness inhibits our decision-making, and when stress stretches our willingness to show grace and patience to others. Look, this month may prove to be an intense testing ground for your faith as displayed in how you really spend your time and your money and your energy and your effort and where you really put your attention and your focus. That becomes a reflection of what you believe about what will happen in the future, about Jesus' return. You know, the old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, summarizes it well. Jesus gives us strength for today, even as we have bright hope for tomorrow. The question is, what will our lives look like this Christmas in, as we wait for his return. So our encouragement is to live faithfully today even as you look ahead to Jesus' future return in glory. Now as we uh, finish this, this very brief study on hope, I want you to, to do something. Over the next few weeks, whenever you walk past the nativity scene in your home or to a store or a church or something, or see a, a Christmas card with a picture of a manger scene on it. I want you to look at that baby and say to yourself, He is my hope. He gives me strength to wait confidently in times of uncertainty. He is the one who fills me with joy through the gracious display of His abundant love in my life. He strengthens me through the power of His Holy Spirit 
to live faithfully for him today, even as I look ahead with longing to the future day when he will return and restore all things. This child, this little baby, is the focus of my hope, the source of my hope, and the power for my hope this Christmas. And may that good news bring you great joy throughout this season. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful for this gift of hope as we reflect on these scenes of a little baby lying in a manger to recognize that you are our hope, our strength, our comfort, the source of all our joy. Lord, our power for living for you in the present. And I pray, Lord, even as we look ahead to Christmas, come, Lord Jesus, come again and make all things new. We pray all this in your name. Amen.